0: The Gospel of Luke, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke chapter 2. If you came today without a Bible, there should be one in a chair in front of you. You can grab it and use it. Somebody can help you find where Luke is or, you know, there's some phenomenal free Bible apps you can download for your phone, for your iPad, uh, for your tablets. You need a Bible. We encourage you to read it every day. God has a, a word that he wants to share with you every single day from the Bible. And so here we are just on the heels of Christmas. It's a day filled with wonder. It's among us where the, it seems as if the world's attention is on Jesus around this time. Of course, we as believers are celebrating, we're excited, we're happy, but even those that don't believe in Jesus Christ have the name Jesus on their lips as they're trying to do great damage. You know, The atheists always come out around the holidays, and those that are skeptics, and, and even though they're trying to tear down such a glorious day, the name of Jesus is even on their lips, and we never give up hope for the skeptic or the critic, because God can save anyone. And we're reminded not only is Jesus was Jesus born, but he lived a life, and he died a horrific death, and yes, he rose again from the dead, and he is alive today, and we gather together to worship him in love and full adoration, because Jesus has been so good to us. Is that a true statement for you? He's been so faithful, and more and more in my life, I'm coming to appreciate what Paul wrote to young Timothy when he told Timothy, hey, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And it's a great time just to look back and see how faithful Jesus has and continues to be in our lives. He loves us. He gave himself for us. And even the Bible tells us that he forever is, intercedes and prays for us as believers in the presence of the Father. So it's good to celebrate and it's good to be excited about the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, I read recently about a story of a couple that was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and what a day that is. The wife, well, she was a little hard of hearing and the husband, he wasn't really known for being openly affectionate, but here it is, 50 years of marriage. He stands up and says to his precious wife my dear wife, after 50 years I love you very much and have found you to be tried and true. And she said, what? So he repeated himself, after 50 years I love you very much and have found you to be tried and true. And so she shot back real quick, well after 50 years I'm tired of you too. (laughs) You know this can be true of a lot of things, can't it? we get tired of things that we're familiar with. It's easy to be tired of things that are continuous and repetitious. You know, we can even get tired of Christmas and all that it's become and all that it is. We hear a story over and over again. It becomes so familiar to us that it begins to lose its special meaning. That's why we can't let Christmas slip through our hands to the prevailing political correctness, or to the cultural consumerism, or to even the in-house Christian fighting over what day it happened and what it celebrates. Listen, this day commemorates the greatest gift of all time, the birth of Jesus Christ, salvation entering into the world. And as we turn again to Luke chapter 2, we try to put ourselves back to Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago and imagine the impact of the message. Prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ, there had been 400 years of silence from heaven. Up to that point, there had been so much going on from Genesis all the way through to the end of Malachi, angels and prophets and messages from God. Then there was a 400-year icy silence, which was broken by the angels coming to announce the birth, first of John the Baptist and then later of Jesus himself. This was a significant event that changed world history and all of humanity forever. Notice with me in Luke chapter 2 verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Verse 7. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary, verse 19, kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Now the author of this particular book of the Bible is a man we know as Luke. We know him as a doctor, Dr. Luke. Luke was not one of the hand-picked disciples of the Lord. He was not an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, Luke wasn't even a Jew, he was a Gentile. He comes along later and was hired by a man by the name of Theophilus to put together an account of the life and times of Jesus Christ. Actually, in the Bible, there are two books that Luke wrote. He wrote this gospel known as Luke by his name, and he also wrote the book of Acts. Now. If anyone ever asks you who wrote the Bible, the answer is, is that God wrote the Bible. God alone is the author, and yet he chose to use human beings, inspiring them by the Holy Spirit, to assure what they wrote down was what he wanted reserved and communicated to you and to me. And so Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down so that when we would read them, I mean, for here, when we would read them, we'd be inspired by the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke is very specific here in pointing out these certain facts so that we'll recognize that the birth of Jesus Christ is a historical truth, that this actually happened. Notice in verse 1, he mentions a man by the name of Caesar Augustus, and in verse 2, he mentions that Quirinius was governing Syria. He wants us to know that this was a real event, not a fairy tale, not a fable. Sometimes as we read it, we can almost think, well, maybe people are saying it so much, so much that it's untrue, and it'd be very easy for you to open up the Bible and say, oh, well, you know, this was a nice little holy book, and, and you know, there's not much truth to it, and it makes some people feel good. But that's not. The Bible. The Bible is the living word of God. Of its own claim, it is full of life. A living and powerful. Sharper than a sword that's sharp on both sides. And Luke wants you to know that this event happened in history. While a guy was ruling as Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was the first man to think of himself and as a god, little g, and demand worship from the Roman Empire. They actually found an inscription in archaeology that described him as, I quote, Savior of the whole world. And that's how he viewed himself. So much so that every year he would demand the subjects of the Roman Empire to go to wherever they set up a statue of himself and take a pinch of incense and spread it on the head of the statue and worship and declare their loyalty to Caesar Augustus, which made it very, very difficult for Christians in the first century because they couldn't do that. Many believers in the first century lost their lives because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar Augustus because they worshiped one Lord and there was only one Savior. There's only one way to the Father and that's through Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, this conflict, really leads to notice what Luke describes in verse 11 where this conflict of not bowing down to Caesar and not saying he's Lord. In verse 11, the declaration, there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus alone is the savior. And that's the message that the shepherds would take, the message they received from the angels, that's the, shep- that's the message they would continue to share declaring that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. He is the true savior, not wrapped in satin robes, but in swaddling cloths, or literally rags. You know, the story of Jesus, his birth, is not a rags to riches story, it's a riches to rags story. Jesus went from the top to the bottom, not the other way around. Jesus left heaven to come to this earth. He went from being sovereign to a savior, from glory of heaven to a stable prepared for animals. Here's how the Bible describes it in another place, according to Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5. It says, Your attitude should be the same as Christ. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that's above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus, the ultimate king, the king of kings, left the glory of heaven to come and live in a humble, earthly surroundings he literally gave up everything for us and God chose this particular moment in history to bring forth a savior it was a strategic moment or what we like to refer to it was a prophetic moment it was the fulfillment of prophecy on in more than one now we use the word when we're studying the Bible prophecy you might refer to prophecy more in everyday language as predictions It's one of the things, I would say it is the thing that supplies the greatest evidence that the Bible is a true document because God goes on record hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years predicting something with specific accuracy and all of the predictions thus far that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled 100% accurately. God doesn't put a prophecy in the Bible and say, well maybe one day a baby will be born somewhere and that baby will then be the savior of the world but he predicts it very precisely so that this day is declared by the angel as the strategic prophetic fulfillment of the promise of the savior. That the promises of God will come to pass and all of the prophecies that we are still yet waiting to see fulfilled will be fulfilled with perfect accuracy. The birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem was no accident. It was not merely the result of a king that wanted taxes, but rather it was the sovereign will of God. It was God's appointment, or what we often refer to as a divine appointment. Might I just add that those of you that are here today for the first time, maybe you're here because you were invited or you're here with family, For those of you that might be turned on the radio and you're just flipping through and then you stopped at an interesting voice with interesting words, this too is a divine appointment. This is God's appointment to remind you or tell you for the very first time with perfect clarity that he loves you. And he proved that love by sending his son Jesus Christ to live for you, to die for you, and that he has risen again from the dead and is alive right now that if you've ever considered and wondered if God, as you know him, cares about you, whether he maybe even doubt his existence, God made it very crystal clear to look to one place to be reminded of his love for you, and that's the cross of Calvary. Because this baby that was born fulfilling prophecy, well, he was born to die, and he lived a life and was crucified. One of the worst ways, at least at the time, it was the worst way for a person to die. It was so bad. It was so bad to die on a cross that the Roman government did not crucify its own citizens. You see, this was a divine appointment, this birth. In another place, the Bible puts it this way in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons. And so picture in your mind Mary and Joseph coming into Bethlehem. She's obviously very ready to give birth. And as they come in we read in verse seven that there was no room for them in the inn. And we often refer to a person that we believe was there known as the innkeeper. And wouldn't you know it, people like to argue, this is a big deal for them. Because they'll come and say, I don't know why you mentioned the innkeeper, because nowhere in the Bible is there ever the mention of an innkeeper. And that I would give you, but I would suggest this to you. Wherever there's an inn, there's an innkeeper. And so I think he was there. And I think we have a lot to learn about the Savior of the world having no room made for him at this particular inn. Now, you have to understand, this demand to go back home to be taxed and to be counted was a big deal. So the city is teeming with people. There's an overflow of people that are come, and yet we read that there was no room for Mary, no room for Joseph, no room for the baby, no room. In this particular inn, we think, how could their heart be so cold? And you know, in many ways, this innkeeper is a lot like people today. It's not so much that he was evil, I don't believe. It was just, he was busy, preoccupied. Isn't that the case around the holidays? Busyness and preoccupation and just being all over the place. I think this guy was interested in making money. I mean, this is an influx of people that isn't normal, isn't regular. And I think that's what's going on with many of the merchants today. Getting ready for all the people out shopping, and, you know, they go through the whole year in the red, and and then that, man, Christmas gets them back into the black, and it's a very important time for merchants today, for shops, for stores, to make those last-minute sales. You know, the innkeeper was busy. A lot of people were in town. A lot of money was to be made. He didn't want to waste his time, I don't believe, with this young couple that obviously were poor and had nothing. I'm sure if they pulled out a bag of shekels, you know, or they pulled out a bag of bills and said, hey, we need a room. Oh, let me make sure that I'll get you what you need right away. But they were poor. They had nothing. Marry a very young girl. I think another problem with the innkeeper was that he didn't have time. He was busy. I think there are a lot like him today. I mean, you might even voice this. If not voice it, you think it, I don't have time for God. I don't have time for church. I don't have time to teach my kids the Bible or to have family devotions. I'm so busy. You might even use that phrase, I'm so busy. It's not true. You're not as busy as you think. Because notice, in this in your life, I see it in my life, you will always make time and you will always find time for what you deem important in your life. You always find time. If it's important to you, you're gonna make it happen. If you wanna do it, you'll do it. If you don't wanna do it, there's always a convenient reason why you haven't. Sometimes that's just being busy. Oh, it's not that our lives aren't filled. The question is, what are our lives filled with? You know, there's a lot of differences in this room today. A lot of age difference, there's different ethnicities here, we live in different places, we have all sorts of differences, economic, drive different cars, take the bus, whatever it might be, there's a lot of differences, but there's also something that we all are the same. While there might be many differences, there's some, something that we all share in common exactly 100%, and that's this, we all have the same amount of time. There isn't anyone here that has more time, and there's not anyone here that has less time, We all have the same amount of time, and what's different with our time is how we choose to use it. And you know, we come up on a new year and we have to ask ourselves, looking back on our previous year here in 2018, did we use our time wisely? Only what's, you know, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. Well, what was done for the Lord this previous year? What changes need to be made? You know, a lot of people think they don't have time for God, but you make time for what really matters and what really matters in your life. For this innkeeper, it didn't matter to take care of this man and his pregnant wife. It didn't matter. So you just go back and sleep with the animals, essentially. You know, the scene of the birth of Jesus Christ has been so romanticized with the nativity scene. I'm sure you've got, many of you've got nativity scenes. They come in all shapes and sizes. You know, it's skewed the reality. It's actually put together a couple different Bible stories that happen at different times. The familiar scene is there's Mary and Joseph, one on each side of Jesus. And you say, well, who's Jesus? Well, the baby, the one with the halo, you know, the one that's glowing in the middle. That's Jesus. And then the animals are all there, different sizes and shape, but sizes and shapes, but they're there kind of reverently looking on. They're all kind of taken aback by the glowing Jesus, and and they're all kind and nice and calm and quiet. And then, of course, then the stars coming through the window. Some nativity have the wise men coming at this time. Then there's the camels, and oh, it was such a great time, all the animals behaving. It's a beautiful thing. that's not how it was. <laughs> he was in a, they were in a cave-like place with dirty, stinky animals that weren't necessarily under control. Where did they lay him? We used the English word manger, but it was actually a feeding trough where it would be disgustingly dirty and unclean and unkempt. The animals would do what animals do, make noises and make other things that stink really bad in that it wasn't as clean and beautiful and antiseptic as you might think. Imagine God the Son starting in such humble beginnings. This is an understatement and I don't make it lightly, but you know, God is a genius. He has all knowledge, but he's a genius in his strategic way of reaching out to you and me. And how does he introduce to us the savior of the world He introduces the Savior to us as a baby. I don't know about you, but I have never been scared of a baby. Babies have been scared of me, but I have never been scared. I've never walked around when you bring your strollers in, peek around, whoa, you know, I've never done that. There's never been a baby, you know, threatening me. There's never been a baby pulling, you know, not never, never been. We're attracted to babies. We love babies. We want to hold babies. We want to do, you know, it's our time where we could do baby talk. You know you want to do baby talk all the time, but you find a baby, gaga goo goo, you can just get lost in the moment to think of, oh, what a blessing to have a baby. Hey, listen, God was very wise because we're not really offended. Babies don't offend us. We love babies celebrate babies as we were mentioning earlier when the kids are going to be up here in the choir tomorrow man it's so beautiful to be like a child and to think of the innocence of faith and trust that children have and so you're introduced today to the savior of the world that came specifically on the timetable of God and yet at the same time we're reminded aren't we that baby grew up he grew up to die he was born to die And the reason he was born to die is to provide to you and me an eternal relationship with God for the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, that's our biggest problem. I know that you don't need a pastor up here pounding the pulpit, describing every sin that he can think of in your life. You know as well as I do, you have sinned. And you go, wait a minute, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, sin may not be all that familiar word to you. Maybe you would say the phrase, well, you know, pastor, I'm not perfect. And to that I would agree. You are not perfect and neither am I. And what you call imperfect, what you call making mistakes, what you call stumbling, on, you know, what you call, and I should have never done that, the Bible calls sin. But you see, sin has a deeper consequence than just hurting someone else, just making a mistake at work, saying a wrong thing here, uh, breaking a crime there. Sin is against a holy and a righteous God. The imperfection that we all share is the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why would this baby be born? Why would this baby grow up? Why would he spend three, the last three years of his life loving, serving, caring, feeding, healing, and most importantly, teaching, teaching, of the true way to the Father, why? Why would his life end so tragically and treacherously? Why would he allow them to nail him to a cross? Why would they be such great discouragement among his best friends when they took Jesus down from the cross and sealed him in a grave, guarded by Roman soldiers, only now to have three days later the stone rolled away and Jesus Christ alive? Walking around, ministering to people, witnessed by over 500 people at one time. Why? So that you and I could receive the forgiveness of our sins. That we would acknowledge it, and that we would ask for it, and that we would live in the forgiveness that's only available from God. This symbolized life of Jesus from the cradle to the cross. I mean, he could have been born in an elegant mansion on the ritziest boulevard in Roman Empire. He could have had rich aristocratic parents boasting of their pedigree. He could have come in the finest of clothes from the most exclusive shops. He could have called down legions of angels as an army of servants to respond to his beck and call, but he didn't have any of that. He laid it aside for you and for me. The Bible says, you know how full of love and kindness our Lord Jesus Christ was. Though he was very rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you could be made rich. And Jesus went from the throne of heaven to a cave filled with animals. He who was larger than the universe became a baby in the womb of a young girl. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of that young girl, submitting himself to his parents. We're at a rude awakening that there was no room for him in the end. Is there room for him in your life today? Is there room for him in the place of great devotion? We often refer refer to that as your heart. You might hear in churches that Jesus is coming into your heart. And that's a, a phrase that's used to describe your surrender and submission to that place of your greatest devotion. Have you surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is he the center of your life? I came across a poem. I want to read it to you. It's called No Room in the Inn. And it goes like this. No beautiful chamber, no soft cradle bed. No place but a manger, no nowhere for his head. No praises of gladness, no thought of their sin. No glory but sadness, no room in the inn. No sweet consecration, no seeking his part. No humiliation, no place in the heart. No thought of the Savior, no sorrow for sin. No prayer for his favor, no room in the inn. No one to receive him, no welcome while here. No balm to relieve him, no staff but a spear. No seeking his treasure, no weeping for sin. No doing his pleasure, no room in the inn. No room, no room for Jesus. Oh, give him welcome free. Lest you should hear at heaven's gate, there is no room for thee. Is there room in your life for Jesus right now? follower of Jesus, are you planning on the, fall, the next year being different than this? Would you make room for Jesus by studying his word? Would you carve out each time, time every day for Bible study and prayer? Would you make room for Jesus in the involvement of your church family? I mean, if you don't make room for him now, then when? When is it the decision of surrender will come once again? This is a time around Christmas that focused so much on the giving and exchanging of gifts, but I'm here to declare to you that God has a gift for you. It's a very important gift. It's the ultimate gift. It's the only gift that really keeps on giving. A gift that will never wear out, never grow old. In fact, it will become more precious to you with the passing of time. Think of what God has done. He has given everything that he possibly could give in the gift of Jesus Christ. And there might be some of you that joined us today that have never opened this gift. It's the greatest gift that's ever been waiting for you. It's not under a tree at your home. It's right in front of you now. It's the forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed. It's the guaranteed hope that when you die, you'll go to heaven. It's the assurance that you will have meaning and purpose in life, it's a settled, eternal hope. And it's because of that sweet little baby born in the manger in Bethlehem, listen, who lived the perfect life and went to the cross and died and rose again for us three days later that you can experience true life. Jesus would say it this way so that we would never be confused. He says, I didn't come into the world to condemn. I came into the world to give life. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you will immediately receive the life you've been living. As good as a life that you've lived thus far, it has been low living compared to what's available to you as you surrender to Him. You want to know this hope of heaven and to sense and realize that your sins can be forgiven and to experience it and to enjoy it. It's the greatest gift that you can enjoy, but let me tell you what, you receive Jesus Christ into your life today, it will be a great gift to your friends and family. It'll be a gift to the body of Christ, to the family of God, as we have been praying and praying and praying for you in particular. Not knowing your name or your face, but knowing that God had a divine appointment for you, even now, in this time. So Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you and loving you, for serving you with our lives, There's always that sense, God, that we could do more or be more, but you're satisfied with us as we abide in you. So we wanna glorify you and thank you as followers of Jesus today. As I mentioned earlier, you have been and continue to be so good to us. Even as some are gripped by circumstance today, pain has visited, an unwanted visitor that refuses to leave. Some are just wrestling with circumstances and difficulties and great disruptions. And there's still some among us that are just shocked and surprised that they're in a church. It's not that you know, being in church isn't like the highest thing on the list that they like to do and yet they're here. And you've declared to them your love and you've declared to them their need And now we just pray, God, that they would respond, that they would surrender, that they would receive the gift of eternal salvation, the forgiveness of sin, to enter into a real relationship with a true and living God, to make room for you and not go down like this innkeeper, missing out on a glorious event because he didn't make room. And so as we're playing as a church, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do just that. We've gathered together just for that purpose, to remind you of the love of God and the birth of Jesus Christ, but more importantly, to remind you of God's love wanting to enter into a forever relationship with you. So if you'd say to me today, Ed, I'm ready on this day, right in this moment, to confess my sins before God, and to receive his forgiveness. I'm gonna invite you, if that's you, would you just stand to your feet? I'd like to pray with you. And we'd like to be happy with you and rejoice. So I am, I'm calling you publicly to respond to the invitation today. One of the things you find out about Jesus, God bless you, is that he loved to call people publicly. Because your life is public. It's public to a few, public to many. You have a family, you have friends, you live in a community, you work. You have a public life. And despite what maybe you've been taught, like, you know, religion is to be kept private, I'm not even calling you to religion. It's a relationship, and relationships are public. It's exciting to celebrate the love of God in our lives. So I'd say, if that's you, just respond. Maybe you're downstairs or out on the radio, and obviously we don't see you. But standing doesn't save you anyway, so the reason I'm calling you public is so we can be happy with you. God can save you anywhere. he can save you laying on a hospital bed. He can save you in a concrete cell. He can save you in a kitchen or in a car. It doesn't matter. But for the sake of us in the room, we get to be here with you and be excited. And so is there anyone else that would say, that's me, Ed. And even if I don't see you because of the lights and such, don't worry about it. God sees you. And he knows. Because he's had this day planned all along This is no surprise to him, that his love has been constantly gnawing at you, constantly coming to you, hasn't it? It's just been this glorious day of what we would call the culmination of the work of God and it's just the beginning. Jesus would refer to this moment as being born again. And so today we invite you, repent of your sins. The word repent means to turn away from confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's the promise of God. And so join in with me. I'll lead you in a prayer where you can talk to God, where you can fulfill that. You confess with your mouth that belief you have in your heart. And you could say something like this. God, I admit that I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus to live for me to die for me and I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul and I commit to following you with my life from this day forward I turn away from my sinful past and ask for your help God to stay away from it and Father I know anyone that comes to you, your Bible says you won't push them away. And while we don't know the condition of hearts or what's going on in the lives of people right now, we just know this, when people respond, angels rejoice, and so do we. And love hopes all things, so we hope, in the agape love of you, God, that these decisions are to follow you are real and genuine especially in these last days in which we live a fresh outpouring of your holy spirit on your church moving toward revival a reviving of our hearts a reviving of our lives that that lord we can't do anything going backwards but we can surely change going forward forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to those things that are up ahead we this one thing i do And that's our desire. So bless those that come to you tonight, come to you today, Lord. Bless them. Use them. And may we be able to watch them grow in your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-GRACE.